Welcome to Family Twist, a podcast about relatively unusual stories of long-lost families, adoption, and lots of drama. I'm Corey. And I'm Kendall, and we've been partners for over 16 years. This is part one of two, and just wanted to let you know that we recorded these stories at two different times, so the sound quality is going to be a little bit different, but we're just matching these tales together in chronological order. This episode of The Family Twist isn't an adoption story or about finding family members via the magic of DNA technology. This is a different kind of twist, but we think many of you will relate to this story. So I'd like to welcome our guest this week. Hello, Michelle. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Michelle McIntosh. Nice to be here. Michelle, I'm going to let you be the star of, of this week's episode and just let you lay the groundwork, kind of share what your family dynamic was like when you were a child. Sure. Yeah. So I guess like background, I grew up in the 90s in North Central Indiana in a college town. I have two younger sisters and my mom is white and my dad is black. So I grew up in an interracial family. Was that something that sort of differentiated you from like, kids you knew or was it not a thing yeah as a kid you don't really fully grasp like racism like you do as an adult but yeah I was definitely aware that my family was different and it started almost immediately as far as like people pointing that out (laughs) so yeah maybe in a not the most PC or polite kind of way Yeah, it was the 90s. So I think PC was a little bit more generalized back then, different than it is today, at least. But yeah, like it was very clear that my dad stood out as like one of the only black doctors in the entire area, let alone the city. And my mom stood out for being married to him. That just wasn't a common thing in Indiana yet. Was there a conversation that you remember your parents having with you and your sisters about this? No, we never had any explicit conversations about it. It was just like, if something happened, like it was brushed off or you just ignored that person. But there were also like little microaggressions and little occurrences like throughout our lives that looking back as an adult, you are just like, oh my God, like that would just not fly today. So for example, there's a story my mom likes to tell me about like when I was born, there is all this like hullabaloo in the delivery room because my mom delivered me and there were like nurses that had nothing to do with the birth that were like coming in and just like peeking in the room, like wanting to see the baby. And my mom was like, okay, you know, what the heck? I it's my first kid, but who cares? Like, why are these people stopping here? And later she realized like it was because they didn't know what a mixed baby would look like. Wow. And that was like, that was me being born. That was the start of my childhood as far as like experiencing that. And some were just curiosity driven and some other things were more malicious, but yeah, that's kind of my birth story. So. Wow. I guess it's not, I guess it's usually like junior high and, and high school generally that like cliques really start forming, but it was like, even in grade school, were you like, were the black kids wary of being friends with you, the white kids wary of being friends with you, or was it a weird dynamic at all like that? So that was the thing. My parents insisted on having us in Catholic schools. They 
wanted to raise us so that there would be no room for criticism of who we were. So we went to the best schools. We played sports. We did everything, like played instruments, like all that stuff. So the school I went to, I was the only multiracial kid. There there weren't any Black kids in my class until like high school. And even then, like I'm white appearing because I have like light skin and light brown hair and I could blend in. It, it was only if people knew who my parents were that like they would that it would be obvious. Gotcha. Gotcha. For friends of yours that didn't know, I would imagine once they hung out at your house, it was like no longer a deal, an issue. Yeah. 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 And I acknowledge like I grew up with like privilege too, because like my dad was a doctor. So like the kids I was hanging out with, at least at the beginning, were at the private school and my dad was a doctor. So there was that relationship already, like colleagues, kids or something. So they, if they were used to my dad, then they, you know, were able to not have as much of a problem. Their kids may have not even noticed. I don't know. At least my closest friends, you couldn't tell. Gotcha. So did your parents make it like a known thing? Like we're going to do what we can. So there's no room for interpretation as far as the best schools and, and and being involved in sports and things like that? Or was that something you had to figure out on your own? No, that was definitely their intention. It was, I think from the get-go, like when they decided to get married and move to central Indiana, I think they just decided like our kids are going to be the best so that no one has anything to say about them being like multiracial. So yeah, they went out of their way to put us in every sport, academic programs, make us extremely well-rounded, polite, and just, yeah, like it, I wouldn't say it was like a normal kid because they went like too far past that. Gotcha. Um, but but yeah. normal for you because you didn't know any different. Correct. Yeah. Michelle, we're going to flash back to your childhood for a little while. You sent me a timeline of things for us to discuss today, and you've got written down twice, First Communion. So I'm thinking there's a story there. Yeah, I was raised Roman Catholic, and I'm the oldest child. So my First Communion was like a big deal, specifically for like my Catholic side of the family. But my dad was raised apostolic Christian, and his mom was Catholic. So my grandma was Catholic. My mom, you know, took me to go buy my First Communion dress, which when you're eight years old, that seems cool because it's like a wedding dress. You get your veil and your white patent leather shoes and all that stuff. And and my parents decided to make it a pretty big party. So they invited all of our family, including extended family. And this was extended family of my dad's that I had no idea existed until this time. There were, you know, my grandparents, my great grandmother was still alive and came down from Chicago. And then a lot of my grandfather's siblings and their children. It was this big party. And it was really the first time I had seen like all of my black family together in my white family and, and watching them interact. And I was a kid, so it was just kind of cool. Everyone was there for me. It was a big party. It's one of my like favorite memories about race as a kid, because this is one of the first times that someone explicitly said to me, you need to be proud of who you are. So the story is my parents had this big deck out back. And so we were all eating outside. It was a nice day. And my great grandmother was just this, like 
beautiful woman. She had a long, like, white braid down her back, and she was like Creole. So I'm not really sure 100% of the ethnic makeup, but I just remember her long white braid. And she pulled me up to her and she said, Come here, honey, and pulled me close and said, I want you to remember something. And I said, okay, not really sure what she was meaning. And she's like, you come from royalty. And I looked at her, I'm eight. So I'm like, oh, I'm a princess. <laughs> oh, cool. And she's like, I just want you to know and always remember you come from royalty. You don't come from a ghetto. You don't come from slaves. You come from royalty. And I just kind of skipped off like, sweet, I'm a princess or whatever. And, but that's always stuck with me because that was the only time someone in my family told me to be proud of who I was. And it's really interesting because here it is like Black History Month. And I bought myself a resubscription to Ancestry.com and realized like it's Black History Month and I can't trace my Black history. And I just remembered this story about my grandma because past the Emancipation Proclamation back in history, you can't find people's names or last names. So I just thought that was interesting to share because, yeah, it was like the only person in my life who was just like, no, be who you are and be proud. That's really cool. Wow. Are you able to go back and find out about more history about your great grandmother or like, where does it where does it stop? Like, where do you get stuck? Yeah, it's been really difficult because I've traced like my DNA through like 23andMe. I've done the ancestry like tree mapping and everything just comes to a screeching halt in like the 1850s, 60s, 70s, depending on which side specifically for the black side of my family. I'm Creole. So the French side, I can trace a little bit further, you know, at different points, like last names become whatever the name you had from your slave owner or whatever name you picked when you were freed. It's really difficult to trace people. On top of that, I noticed that with census documents, people's names could just be spelled like phonetically, like not everyone knew how to read and write. And not every census worker seemed to like either <laughs> know how to spell or spelled consistently. So there are like certain people's names that have five or six different spellings every 10 years on, on different census documents. So anyway, to make a long story short, it's extremely difficult in addition to the lack of really just black history on platforms like Ancestry.com. So you and your two sisters, your parents had some very high expectations for you and you were encouraged to take part in activities and sports and stuff like that. Did you feel like they were constantly pushing you or was it just because you were raised that way that this was just what you do. You study hard, you go to practice and play as hard as you can. And... A little bit of both. Like there was a lot of pressure to be the best, not just because of like the racial narrative I realized later with like my parents wanting us to overcome stereotypes or whatever, but also my dad does not like to lose anything. So like he coached all of our sports and so his teams didn't lose. His daughters didn't get bad grades. There's just not an option. <laughs> <laughs> How did he make that known that was not an option? Pretty obviously, like we were definitely reprimanded or had to do all the extra math practice and all that stuff. The 90s was also the epitome of the professionalization of youth sports, as we all know. And I had said earlier that my parents really wanted us to excel in everything we did. 
And one of those things for me was competitive swimming. I swam a lot and my parents eventually put me in like a Olympic development like training program and all this stuff. And I didn't make the cut because it wasn't that good. And it's also like really bad for your developing joints to be in something like that. Now, your dad wasn't your swim coach. No, thank God. <laughs> no, swimming wasn't his strong point, but he was an active. I could hear him underwater. We'll put it that way. Cheering you on. Right? Yeah, cheer, cheering. <laughs> yes. He was always looking for opportunities to show his athletic prowess and make sure everyone remembered that he was there. So yeah, swim meets were no exception. In the summers, we had swim meets at night and we swam at an outdoor pool. And one night there was the parents basically like drank during these swim meets because it's a bunch of screaming children running around and swimming and stuff. And they're loud, like swim meets are really loud. And so someone had the bright idea of, okay, once the swim meet's over, let's have a parent's relay. My dad decided that this was going to be his big showcase to show how well he could swim, which I think had several meetings on the stereotype that not a lot of Black people swim. And so I remember my favorite color was purple at the time. So I had this like really bright purple swim cap. And he asked me for my swim cap and put it on his head. And it was a relay. He strategically positioned himself to be the last and final leg of the relay so that he could clinch the win. Right. Mm -hmm. So I just have this memory of him with my purple swim cap doing this flying leap off the side of a pool into the water. My dad was a big guy. It was a big splash. He knew how to swim, but he wasn't like, this amazing swimmer. So luckily they had a lead and he still clinched the victory or whatever of these like drunk parents. But yeah, there's a lot to prove for some reason with that swim meet. <laughs> wow. Wow. I imagine there's probably like dozens of other stories. If we said the right thing, it would, <laughs> yeah, that, that would trigger. Yeah. yeah that's, um, I mean, that definitely conjures an image. Talk a little bit about what it was like being on teams and having your dad be the coach. My dad was hyper competitive and he was like always our soccer coach. So my whole childhood and teenage years, but I didn't really think much of it at the time because like we won a lot you know the motto was like play to win and we were really good like we had some really good players on our team and so it was fun sports are fun when you win <laughs> yeah he used to play rugby in college and in grad school and so I think because he had no sons and soccer was the closest thing to rugby that he could get his daughters involved in I think he took it that far. <laughs> so there was a lot of you get slide tackled, you better get back up and there's no crying and that kind of stuff. And so there was just you had no excuse. And <laughs> the other part is he is a he's an orthopedic surgeon. So like you can't claim your foot hurts or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. He could fix so, he could fix it for you. Yeah. Yeah. It was just <laughs> like, yeah, we'll deal with it after get back in the game. Yeah. But it, it behind that was like there's we don't lose. There's just no room for that. So lots of soccer practice stories. He was, yeah, he was my coach for, wow, probably like five to high school. Oh, wow. Boy. Yeah. Wow. 
and my sisters. So yeah, he coached a couple teams and we won a lot, but <laughs> I admire a lot of children who have their parents as coaches in general. I think that's what I've witnessed is that's difficult in, in yeah. general. I, I feel like it's just that un, undue pressure to, to. Yeah. Ask. I think like it's a rare, unique kind of parent that has the maturity not to like over coach their kid yeah. when, when they're in that position. Yeah. That, that wasn't the case. Looking back, there are some things that I did notice like later after talking to people that were not necessarily normal. So for example, every once in a while in September, like people will talk to each other, like, where were you on nine 11? And for me, that's the first time I realized that this is a really messed up story. On 9-11, after we were pulled out of school, my dad insisted on having soccer practice. At the time, I told myself, oh, it's because, you know, we're not going to be intimidated by a terrorist attack or anything. But like, he like made it a mandatory practice. It was just odd because we were at this huge soccer complex and the only team practicing. People were really uneasy and it it was just like... My dad demanded that we have soccer practice. And yeah, like I said at the time, it felt like, oh, we're not giving in. But then it felt weird and defiant and like insensitive to the fact that our nation had just been attacked in multiple places. Right. And it was kind of a time of be with your family and watch the news and figure out what's going on and, you know, next steps and stuff, not like ignore that that's happening and have a two-hour soccer practice or whatever. Yeah, I would think some parents would be weirded out. Yeah, I mean, and they were shamed. Like, if the kids didn't come to the practice, they're called out later. Like, it was just a really strange reaction to the only attack in our lifetime after Pearl Harbor. Right, let's go practice <laughs> for the next game. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, so that's one example of just lack of, like, sensitivity, I guess, to, like, other people's needs. It just, I'm not describing this well, but it's it just kind of like ignorant of <laughs> what's going on right. in the world. And soccer is not the center of the universe. Right. And missing one practice was not going to affect like our team's winning streak or anything. Right. Well, and again, we're not psychologists, but I mean, from your research, is that sort of like a symptom of a narcissist, that kind of behavior? Yeah. I'm, yeah. It's like the world exists for them planes crashing into the pentagon in the world trade center that's not part of my reality so i'm just going to carry on with my normal day and my normal day consists of coaching girls soccer and it's almost like defiant like you're not going to change anything about my life but yeah i mean as far as like the narcissism like another interesting fact about my father and soccer coach was he really liked sports cars it was a treat for him, like he he had a sports car in addition to like his normal car. He leased his car. So there's a new car every few years or whatever. And he started coordinating the car color to our soccer team. We were um, blue most of the time. <laughs> the other part of that was like my dad always liked to appear really cool. And I just have this vivid memory of him pulling up to soccer practice late. He was always late in a powder blue Corvette with the top down, blaring Shake a Tail Feather by Murphy Lee. And who else is in that song? <laughs> Nelly, Diddy, I think. Wow. And I was like, 
11 or 12 or whatever the hell that song came out. And it's like, this is awkward. But yeah, he wanted that attention. Like practice started not on time, but when he got there. And when he got there, you knew about it. And of course, later, after I found out about why he was late, that it made even more sense. Wow. Yeah. Well, kind of like sports cars, too. Should I be worried? I mean, what color are they? <laughs> well, I mean, he, and what are you playing? <laughs> he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't currently have one. No, I would rock the powder blue. All right. I'm frightened now. Yeah. I mean, I am a little, too. <laughs> and how about your mom? What was her attitude toward academics and extracurriculars? I think the average mom. You just want your kids to do well. And if you know that they can do better, like pushing them to that. My parents were both athletic and therefore competitive. They pushed us to do well in sports and then pushed us to do well in school. My mom was more on the, we need to be extremely conscientious and polite. She grew up in the South, like she's from St. Louis. And that was pretty important to her. How do you feel your relationship was with them at this time when you were grade school, junior high? Grade school, I, you know, Felt like I had a good childhood, nothing to worry about. It shifted in junior high because I essentially like caught my dad cheating on my mom. I basically helped trigger their divorce. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so that, yeah, that shifted everything pretty quickly. How did you catch him? I played a lot of soccer, like I said, and my dad had pushed that I be on a state team. And so my mom was taking me down to Indianapolis, which is the capital, to play. And we were leaving to go down to Indianapolis and we were on like a state road and we saw my dad pass on the highway, but it was close enough, like the opposite direction. It was close enough where you could see like, oh, hey, I think that's dad. And oh, there's somebody in the car. And so, you know, we had just gotten cell phones at this point. And so my mom called him and said, hey, you know, we just passed you and taken, you know, Michelle down to Indy and who's in the car with you? And my dad played it off. Oh, it's one of my nurses. Like we just went out to lunch and my mom goes, oh, okay. Like, you know, let me talk to her. Let me say hi. <laughs> Pass the phone over. It wasn't this nurse. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. That was a, uh, long and silent car ride. <laughs> had you had any kind of inkling that something was amiss before that? No, I grew up with my dad being a very magnetic personality. He's a very good doctor. He has like impeccable bedside manner. And I'm not just saying this to like brag on him. It's, it's just true. Like he, that that's what makes him stand out besides like his skill. And he had this following of patients. Like every year at Christmas, we would be bombarded with like cookies and gifts and like people made us clothes and people made us all these things. And he was this like local celebrity in a way. So like when we would go out to dinner, for example, I can't remember a dinner where it wasn't interrupted by somebody coming up to our table and saying, thanks for my surgery, I feel great, or blah, 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 or just saying hi. In addition, he was very flirtatious. So it was considered normal to see him like flirt with a, a waitress, like even at a family dinner. Like it wasn't anything over the top at that time, but like, you know, it was enough to make me uncomfortable as a kid where I'm just like, okay, 
are you being nice to this woman i have no idea who she is <laughs> he was always just like that he liked to joke a lot with people so he'd like joke with my teammates he'd joke with my teammates parents like he was just always the center of attention so no it, it wasn't that surprising i guess you said your dad was always late arriving at practice. Was that, was he like late in general? Like what about, I mean, doctors typically have to be on time. Right? Oh yeah. You'd think, okay, yeah, they've got to get everything on time, especially doing surgery or something. So the patient doesn't <laughs> stay under for too long or whatever, but no time started and stopped when he decided it did. So being a doctor is absolutely no exception to that. For example, I've mentioned this before, but like my dad had really good bedside manner. Yeah. That's something that like really set him apart and helped develop this like almost fan base of patients for him. And one way he did that was actually to bring my sisters and I when we were little kids with him on hospital rounds. So we'd go in the room and he was orthopedic surgeon. So like it's a variety of people, you know, some sports injuries or just older people with like hip replacements or, you know, knee replacements or whatever. And he'd bring us in. We would talk to the patient and hold their hand and visit with them and tell them about school or whatever. And my dad would take out their staples or change their dressing or whatever he was checking up on after like surgery. I didn't think of it as that weird as a kid though. And I actually find it a strength now because I'm really comfortable in hospitals. Like the doctor, I know a lot of people are afraid of the doctor. And for me, it's just whatever. Like surgery does not scare me. Like I'm weirdly comfortable in almost every part of the hospital. So yeah, we would go on rounds with my dad. And then I'm not sure if this is still a thing just because I've been not creeping around hospitals over the last you know, decade and a half or so. But in the 90s, like they used to have pretty nice doctor's lounges, which like a doctor's lounge is basically where all of the surgeons or the doctors on call, they could like stay the night in there. There was like a buffet, TV, essentially just a lounge in the hospital that only doctors had access to. Yeah, my dad would take us on rounds or say he was taking us on rounds. And then it, inevitably we would end up like in the doctor's lounge and like he would just leave us in there and like disappear for an hour, half an hour. And, you know, say he was making rounds or checking on something, which we later learned was not exactly what was going on, which is how I figured out that there were nurses and other hospital oh, staff um, okay. involved in some of these affairs that my dad was having. So he wasn't leaving the hospital. Oh, no, I, I think he was in the same building. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. I had cartoons. I had a tray of cookies sitting there. Like I was, I was cool. Or I'd bring my homework. Like my sisters and I would just sit there and do homework. There's nothing to complain about because we had full control over the TV and a bunch of foods. There was a lot of that growing up. Like especially if it was my dad's turn to watch us and my mom was hanging out with friends or running errands or something. Like there's a lot of doctor's lounge time. I guess he just didn't think that you'd your brain would ever go there, that he was doing something inappropriate. <laughs> you... Yeah. I mean, there's that side of the inappropriate, like hooking up with a nurse in a broom closet or whatever was going on. But then there's another side of inappropriate, which is as I got older, I was pressured really by both of my parents to go into pre-med. My mom's a nurse and my dad is obviously a doctor. So like that was the world they knew. And as I started 
thinking about college and stuff like that was the obvious, hey, you should consider this. And so when I expressed interest in becoming a doctor someday, my dad started letting me come to watch surgeries, which I'm not sure if you're allowed to have a teenager in the operating room with you. But I scrubbed up and I was there and watched orthopedic surgeries are not cute. Like they're... <laughs> There are like bones being broken or like realigned. There's a lot of sounds like crunching and grating and like it's a hard thing to watch. It's not like a precise, clean thing. So that was interesting. And eventually I decided not to go into pre-med. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do have a memory of being in an operating room with my dad once. And this really disturbed me because I... At this point, I was a teenager. Not only was there like a person laying cut open on the table, but my dad, like you're supposed to leave your cell phone and like all that stuff outside of the operating room. Like the point is to make sure the opportunities for contamination are as like low as possible. Right. And he didn't abide by that because he was too important. So his cell phone was in his pocket and it went off during the operation and he turns to the nurse next to him and says, can you get my cell phone for me? And it's like in his pocket. Without hesitation, she reaches into his like scrubs pocket, like front pocket and grabs the cell phone. And I'm just like, what the hell? <laughs> Gross. And opens the phone and holds it up to his face so he can have this like full out conversation as he's like, you know, slicing into this person. Wow. And I'm just looking at him like I didn't go to medical school, but like what? <laughs> and but that was normal. You know, it was his world, his rules, but also like he had that much control over people. I have no idea if this nurse was one of the, you know, millions that he had affairs with, but she didn't hesitate. And that was an order. Get my cell phone out of my pocket, open it, hold it up to my face and stand there while I have this conversation. That's when I started realizing that he had a pretty big manipulative power over people. Everything revolved around my dad, where we ate, what we ate, time we ate, that everything, whether or not we were late for school, I made my dad's coffee in the morning. Um, he requested it to be a certain color, quote, the color of his skin. Oh, my God. I thought this was a really cool task as a kid. So my mom would make the coffee, but I would run back and forth with the coffee cup and like creamer and try and add just enough to make it the color of his skin, which is like a caramel color. That's how he liked his coffee. I had to start the car in the morning for him. So it was like warmed up like Indiana, like it was pretty cold in the winter. Yeah, just everything. Everyone catered to him. So yeah, when you grow up around that, it feels normal until you leave it. And there are still parts of that stay with you. How soon after that trip to Indy did your mom decide that they were going to split up actually it was a while my mom's really catholic and her first reaction was to go to see a priest and get like counseling through the catholic church when that didn't work she asked my dad to go on men's retreats within the catholic church uh when that didn't work i think they went to couples therapy with a normal psychologist but my dad doesn't really apologize you can imagine it's hard to repair a relationship if no one did anything wrong. <laughs> so. so he didn't think he did anything wrong by having an affair. No, I don't. I don't think he did. How did you learn about what was said between them? That was like, ultimately, this is it. 
Yeah, I was about 13 when this happened. My parents had decided to move to Indiana because it was halfway between Chicago, where my dad's from, and St. Louis, where my mom is from. So they moved somewhere where they basically started fresh and made friends there. My dad's personality is one such that he had built up this celebrity following. He's the man. He's the, he's everybody's favorite doctor. So he can't be portrayed in his world. He can't be portrayed in a negative light. As my mom is trying to get counseling and pointing out that they need to fix their relationship, this whole facade of this perfect hip interracial family starts to dissolve. The blame started to shift to my mom, like my dad blaming my mom because she was destroying that image. And she was the one trying to like break up the marriage, despite my dad cheating. Additionally, during this time, I was pretty aware after that first sighting what my dad was capable of. And so started noticing, you know, that there's some unexplained women that are just around. So for example, at the university that was in the town I grew up in, uh, my dad was a huge football fan, best friends with some football alumni, like all these things. And so we were always at games and there would just be women that would meet up with him at tailgates. If my mom wasn't there, my mom was at a different tailgate with like some of her friends, or we had a woman show up at our house, completely unexplained looking for my dad. <laughs> so the, it just started to, everything started to unravel. And my mom confided in me during that time. So like, I remember at the grocery store, I think my mom suspected that there was a woman there that my dad was possibly like having an affair with. and pointing that out to me. <laughs> and that was the thing. It, it wasn't just this one woman in a car one day. It right. was double digits at least. And we don't actually have a count or it, it was just, there were a lot of them. That's uh, definitely a lot for a 13 year old to have to take yeah. on. How was it explained to your younger sisters why they were splitting up? It wasn't. I helped shelter them from that. They eventually found out when the divorce was final, why, but like my, my parents were giving them conflicting reasons too. Cause like my dad was trying to, you know, defend himself. And then my mom didn't want to completely ruin their childhoods and say your dad was having an affair with like multiple women. <laughs> it was just, I think it's hard to say like without at asking them directly but like I think they found out that he had an affair not like multiple affairs and it was just left at that what did the divorce do to his status as the man it elevated it believe it or not it elevated it when all else fails throw a tantrum is how his his you know mantra works like I told you he had this huge patient base and uh, this like celebrity status and he just told people like my mom was just this heartless B word that, you know, was leaving him. And, you know, he, he turned people against my mom. It sounds stupid now, but like when you're with all the context that I've given you about like what they were trying to build and it being a relatively small town and them being one of the few interracial couples there, 
this was a big deal because my mom was like marked like at that point. Wow. So yeah, that was hard because I was like sheltering my sisters from it as much as I could. And same with my mom, but also like, you know, my mom lost so many friends over that. It went from a huge social circle down to like maybe five people that were like supporting her and helping out. So yeah, that, that sucked. (laughs) What was the visitation like with when you would, your sisters would see your dad? At first there was this huge fight over the house I grew up in because it was similar to my dad's personality and over the top. And so eventually like my mom won and was able to keep the house under the condition of selling it. And my dad moved out and like purposely moved into like a shitty apartment complex could have definitely afforded something nicer, but like wanted to one, create like a pity party and two, he thought it was temporary. Like he thought my mom was just going to change her mind. So I remember visitation being awful because we'd go to this like shitty apartment complex and be miserable because like he just didn't bother to like furnish it completely or buy groceries or it was just not home you know it was just kind of this weird bachelor pad and so it was like hard to do your homework there and so it was very disruptive to go back and forth between houses and I guess we had that like standard Wednesday and every other weekend visitation set up so we lived primarily with my mom thank god but then also like visited my dad now that your parents are split up, and I guess if once your dad realizes that it's not temporary, that they're not getting back together, I mean, does he start dating right away? Or I don't think he ever stopped. <laughs> Out of the open, was he open about? Yeah, it? no. So that's that was interesting. I know he was still dating, but we weren't introduced to anyone until later because, like. He thought he was like really sneaky, keeping up this victim facade and poor me. And my mom's such a horrible person for leaving him. And no, there were definitely people he was dating. It's just we weren't we weren't going to meet them or see them. So you you knew the situation, even if your sisters weren't privy to like everything that was going on. So like when he would say these things about your mom, what would you say to him? We got in a lot of fights. Because, like, he knew I knew. And, like, his favorite kid, I mean, this is getting into, like, narcissistic personality theory, but, like, all narcissists have a favorite kid, and then they have a kid that they make the black sheep of the family. And it's like a power dynamic. And I'm not a psychologist. I can explain, like, what I know about that. But essentially, my point is, like, his favorite daughter was one of my younger sisters, and he didn't want her to know because it would ruin their relationship, of course. And he would, he and I would fight without them around, or he would try and intimidate me into being quiet or something. And eventually, like, he just stopped bad-mouthing my mom, because, like, it would just always cause a fight. And my mom tried to not bad-mouth him around my sisters. It was just this mutual thing eventually but in the first few years I mean it just got ugly so I don't know how deep you want to get or whatever but you've hinted at in conversations that he was involved in some darker stuff I don't know if you want to open the door to that or not 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. The one story I'd like to share, just because I don't know who who will be listening to this, but if you can relate to this story, then, you know, I want to let you know that there's like a way out of this. But one day I walked into high school. There are a couple guys that I was friends with and I got to school early usually. And they were there and they were like giggling and like talking. So I walked up like normal and just said hi. And they're just kind of being weird and avoiding eye contact. I'm like, oh, what's up? Finally, one of them goes, oh, we saw your dad last night. And I already was just like, oh, shit. I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I was like, no, what do you mean? Like, you saw my dad. And I should provide context. One boy's father was my dad's accountant. And the other boy's father was my dad's divorce attorney. Oh, God. Small town. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Finally, I get the story out of him. And the one guy turns to me and he goes, yeah, I saw your dad doing cocaine. I'm like, what do you mean? Yeah, he's doing cocaine off of a hooker. And I'm like, how did you possibly see that? We're in high school. He's like, oh, my dad had a party. And everybody was there. And we... I walked down to say hi to everybody and your dad was snoring cocaine. (laughs) And what do you say to that? I was like 16 or something. And I grew up, aside from what was going on in my household, I didn't know anything about drugs. Like we just had the D.A.R.E. program. And so you just hear like crazy, crazy people do cocaine or something. Like just people outside of what I considered my world. You didn't see a lot of TV shows or movies with 90s Coke parties in Indiana. Exactly. Yeah. We know who would have started in that had they been. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, eventually, like I learned that my dad's attorney and my dad were frequently doing drugs and things like cocaine, or I don't really know the whole extent, but like they paid off police. They, it was just this big party that they would have. And now, people that I went to school with knew about that. So that was a hard pill to swallow because obviously I didn't want people to know that my dad did stuff like that. That was also playing into a stereotype about black people that I didn't want to like help facilitate too with the drugs. And I was an older teenager. So at this point, like the stereotypes are starting to appear and yeah, things like that. I had a history teacher who was white ask me in the middle of class in a classroom full of white children what my perspective on slavery in the American South was, like me specifically. Wow. <laughs> how wow. do you didn't know how to respond to that one? He had this like fan group of like patients basically or just admirers. But he also had a pretty tight group of friends. But they were like shady as fuck. There were like two in particular And I'm just going to use their names because who knows if they're actually going by these names or if they're real names. He had these two guys in Chicago. One was named Chicago Mike and the other one's name was Dwight. Okay, so like already sketch, just like Chicago Mike. Mike. Great. So like Chicago was my dad's proof that he was like cosmopolitan. I, I mean, I guess in the same way as if you said you lived in like Manhattan or something, it was like pride and I'm from Chicago. And depending on you know, the context, it was like, I grew up at the South side, which is like the rough part of Chicago, I think still is, but it definitely was in the nineties and eighties to like impress people. Or I'm from Chicago because that was the biggest city 
near where we lived, like definitely surpasses the size of Memphis or St. Louis. Yeah. So Chicago Mike and Dwight were like these weird, I just want to call them cronies that would appear whenever there was some sort of like cool dad event that he wanted to take us to up in Chicago or somewhere nearby. One piece of the story is that my dad had this like apartment in Chicago that he eventually bought like when he got a divorce and it was essentially a a pimp apartment and he like split it with Dwight, I believe. And so they co-owned it. And that was where they took women on the weekends. It was like really gross. Anyway, I have a couple of memories with these two. One of my like cool dad events that I was taken to as a teenager was a Black Eyed Peas concert at the United Center. And Black Eyed Peas are like, they're really good, but it's like a harmless concert. Like I still grew up fairly sheltered despite what was going on in my family. And I'm telling you this for a reason. So just hold on a second. Anyway, we get up to the United Center. We don't have tickets. And I'm like, all right, how dad, how are we going to get tickets? He's like, I got a hookup. Okay. (laughs) So we walk up to like wheel call or something. And my sisters are with me too. And we're like, there's like a line of ticket windows and there's one open for, we'll just say it's for legitimate ticket owners. And then the rest of them are like lights off, shade down. No one's there. So my dad makes this weird phone call to Chicago Mike who then comes out of line somewhere and just appears. And I'm just kind of, what the hell? And with that, he walks down to the furthest darkened window in this line of ticket windows and like knocks on it. And then the shade is pulled up and someone like slides them tickets. Like what the, and I, I was going to alert by this point because my parents were divorced. My dad was doing these like cool events to like basically be the, be appeared to be the better parent. And so I was just like, don't we need to pay for those? Like, what is this? And he's like, no, just shut up and get in line. And we eventually went into the concert. Okay. I also did not know that Chicago Mike and eventually Dwight were accompanying us to this concert. So that's already strange. I'm a teenager. My sisters are preteens. We're there at a concert with our dad. And then these two grown men that we like barely know are also there. And it's Black Eyed Peas. I'm not sure if that's something that just random adults would go to by themselves or what. Well, I don't know. Kendall and I didn't go see Kesha. (laughs) Okay. All right. Fair. But together and probably got your tickets through a legitimate means. Okay. So we go to our seats and I really wasn't told much about the concert other than it was the Black Eyed Peas. So I wasn't told who the opener was. It turns out the opener was Ludacris, and it was for his Battle of the Sexes album. And that is the first time I saw grown women twerking, which kind of blew my mind because I just didn't think it was very appropriate. Like, grew up fairly sheltered. So I was like, oh, what is going on? People are having sex on the stage, like trying to shield my sisters from that where were the seats were they were they good seats they were decent honestly they weren't like amazing it wasn't like on the floor or anything we were mid range and looking right at the stage 
So they're okay seeds. Yeah, just weird stuff like that where these two guys would just appear out of nowhere. Dwight appeared on our doorstep one day in like a um, Morpheus, like long black leather jacket that he had recently acquired and was just like, hey, I'm here to go to whatever he and my dad were doing, you know, which was just like creepy as hell or just there's just these two guys that would just appear. And like I later learned they were probably giving my dad drugs or something. I don't know. Yeah. Lots of strange friends, strange habits, like weird, shady things going on. So when did you start having that realization of what you've explained to us that he had to be the main guy in the room, that he had these narcissistic tendencies? Like when did that kind of dawn on you? And when did you like start researching that? Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing about narcissism is it's like a, it's a term that's just thrown around pretty commonly there. I definitely knew my dad was selfish. Like I knew what that meant by that age. And, and my mom put us in counseling. It was through my first therapist who explained what narcissism was. And he had me read this book, which was called the wizard of Oz and other narcissists, which I recommend for anyone who wants to investigate that further. It basically explained that it's a pathological condition it's not like a personality trait. Like it is a DSM defined personality disorder, which was just really interesting and shocking to find out like that your parent has a personality disorder. So that's how I learned about it. The thing about narcissism is a narcissist goes all the way to make sure that like they at all costs are protected. Any amount of manipulation is on the table. Any amount of lying or whatever it takes to like keep them in the image that they want to be seen in. So it I didn't learn how to deal with it for like a decade because it's really difficult to deal with. You have to realize like, you know, what they're trying to protect about themselves. You have to realize like their behavioral patterns and how it's damaging you because narcissists are kind of like a vampire. Like they will suck your blood and kill you if they can, if they benefit. Realizing that and then realizing that about someone who thought loved you is pretty hard. Yeah. Neither one of us are psychologists, but I would imagine that it's difficult to diagnose a narcissist because they probably don't think they're a narcissist and would not seek that kind of Exactly. They might know, but by definition, they're never going to go submit to therapy. They're too perfect. I think he knows that there's, you know, something up with him, but like, he's never going to condescend to go to a therapist, especially as a doctor. As you said, it took you about 10 years to figure this out. What was, what were those years like being around him? (sighs) Yeah, that's an interesting question. So The best way to put it is that I learned how to survive him. Once he got over the pity party stage of the early years of the divorce, it turned into I'm the cooler parent stage. So then it was, I'm going to buy you nicer things. I didn't get my first cell phone until high school, which was actually earlier than a lot of my classmates because my dad was so cool and gave me a cell phone early, that kind of thing. He would take us on trips and things like my mom couldn't afford basically to do. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. We really appreciate you sharing the story. Oh yeah. 
anytime there's a plethora of stories that can be shared so we'll, know. Yeah. I'll have you back for sure right <laughs> I do find it interesting uh, a similarity that I never thought about until you were talking about it between your story and my story being an an adopted child from a really small town mm-hmm. I feel like my parents had a kind of a similar approach the way that your your parents wanted to prove that, you know, an interracial couple could have really successful children. Mm-hmm. I think my adoptive parents felt very much like that too, almost like they were so much older than the parents of kids my age, mm-hmm. that it's almost like they needed to prove that as older parents, they could be as involved as the younger parents and have a successful child. So it's interesting, the parallel between your that part of your story in mind that there was a lot of, and I won't even call it pressure, but just emphasis on perfection and success and prove everybody else wrong. I think there weren't that many adopted children in my small town. And I feel like my parents wanted to prove that having an adopted child was just as good as having the birth children. So it's so interesting. I, I'm glad that came up. It I'd never thought about it in that light before. Well, again, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. This is the Family Twists podcast hosted by Kendall and Corey Stultz with original music by Cosmic Afterthoughts and produced by Outpost Productions and presented by Savoir Fair Marketing Communications. Have a story you want to share? Visit familytwistpodcast.com. All our social media links are there as well.